Good morning, Thrive Church. How are we doing this morning? It's good to have you with us today. Um, whether you're online, watching us, or physically in here and having some of our Richmond campus people attending today, we had a power outage over there. Amen. We love our Richmond campus. And uh, we have, man, we're one church with two locations, but we're one church. Amen. So it's great to have them here uh, today. Well, if you're just new with us or joining us, we're in a series in the book of Acts called Unstoppable. And what we're looking at is this movement you're a part of, that you see all across America and the world, how did it begin? Uh, what was God doing in, in the early church? And we've been looking at that since uh, post-Easter, the week after Easter. And we're going to join, journey through the book of Acts all the way through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Well, um, when I was first teaching my son about plants and planting things and how they grow, he was very discouraged and very disappointed as a young child, a very, very young child, because he didn't like the fact that we had to put the seed into the soil. He's like, why can't we just leave it on top of there so I can watch it grow? Like, why can't we do that and put just rain and sunshine on it? And he was really distraught, and he, like, wanted to make me do that. And so what I had to do was show him we put one on top, and we put one inside. I said, all right, bud, let's, because he, he will not live, like, he is headstrong. I was like, okay, let's, let's do two, and let's see if your way works, bro. Let's, let's, let's see if it works, right? We're going to do a science experiment uh, for you. And we did that. And what he found out was he was just very impatient, wanted to see the, why isn't it growing yet? Where is it at? What's happening? I had to try to explain to him. And eventually he saw the sprout come up. But his idea of like a seed growing and blooming and sprouting was you just put it on top of the soil, put a little bit of water, put it in the sunshine, and we can just watch it just turn into this really cool thing. And I think sometimes, as I thought about the message today, as followers of Jesus, I think sometimes we think the same way about our personal growth and development and the same way about even the advancement of God's kingdom in the local church. We think it's all sunshine and rain and growth and advancement. And I don't think we truly understand God's way sometimes of developing us, of transforming us into the image of Christ, and even advancing his church and the kingdom. And so I want to help redefine some of that bad thinking today and help you understand how God views that. And there's no better passage than Acts chapter 8. Now let's, let's catch up to speed here what's happening. We've established that the book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. And Luke was a doctor who did research, facts. And so he wrote the second book to his friend Theophilus, wrote the gospel of Luke first, wrote the second one again to his friend Theophilus to help Theophilus understand more about what was happening there, to help him understand what, why he's following Jesus and what he's a part of. And so the book of Acts, you look at it, it's a 30 to 40 year history of the early church where Luke, this doctor, he, he spent the first 15 chapters of it from the outside in. He researched it. He talked to Paul. He talked to Peter. He talked to the rest of the apostles to get the backstory of all of this. But we'll see later on that he joins the team in Acts 15 and then travels with Paul. And it goes from what they did to what we did. And so what the book of Acts is about is after Jesus resurrected, it wasn't over. And many times at Easter, we preach a resurrection. We're like, like let's go on to, you know, seven ways to have a better life. <laughs> and we forget, like, what happened after that. Jesus physically appeared to the apostles many times over the 40-day period before he ascended to heaven, teaching them about the kingdom of God, Luke records. And then he tells them, and this is the key to the, and especially the key to, to this, he tells them, the key to the book of Acts is Acts 1, 8, 1 verse 8. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, don't miss this, Judea, Samaria, and then the outermost parts. 
And to them, I think they just skated over that and thought, okay, cool. And so they obeyed Jesus, they go to the upper room, they pray, the Holy Spirit fills them, and Jerusalem really starts seeing a move of the Lord. Jews are coming to, to faith in Christ as the Messiah. Now that's good, right? We saw the believers rapidly, rapidly multiply daily, like it was crazy what was happening, but it's only in Jerusalem. They, they really didn't go much to Judea. Maybe some, they, they ventured out, because Judea is like your cousin. It's still your extended family. The Jews were comfortable with Judea. But they would not go to Samaria, and they would, n- would never think of going to the Gentiles, the pure to us, non-Jews, because they weren't sure if we could even be saved. That was all just, a, that's, that's the question mark. And they stayed in Jerusalem, and they did not venture out to what God had originally called them to do. And so what happened is they saw great blessing, things were going wonderful, but then persecution began to occur from their own Jewish people because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They said, I don't understand why you're doing this. We're cutting you off from our food program. We're cutting you off from financial help, assistance, and support. And so we saw a few weeks ago they had to start doing yard sales and raising money, you know, some, some, some barbecue dinners like we're doing for our Nicaragua missions trip, you know, do some, some pork stuff, we're going to sell some stuff, and did that. And then we saw last week that there were widows being left out, and there's some arguing in the church, in the early church, and they handled that. They, they focused. Remember, focus brings fruit. But today what you see is this. What we didn't get to last week in Acts 7 was after they got very focused and Jewish priests began to be converted. Remember that? Jewish priests. That was huge. That's the top of the food chain in the Jewish religious system. Then the persecution ramped up. One of the leading Jewish religious, religious leaders named Saul, what he did was he began to go and really, perse- his job was persecute Christians. Like literally for breakfast, he persecuted Christians. He would find Jewish Christians and he would hurt them. He would bring them into jail for lunch. Guess what he was doing on, on his schedule? He's persecuting more Christians. And then at dinner time, guess what he's doing? It's already booked. He's persecuting more Christians. And he went from house to house doing this, hurting them. And then what happened is, they were not seeing the Christians retreat. And Saul said, okay, here's what's next for you. He consented to the killing of Stephen, one of the seven we saw last week, one of the most influential men in the group. Besides the 12 apostles, Stephen was right up under them with the seven. And he, was, he preached a gospel message on repentance and faith in Jesus, and they stoned him to death and watched that. And Saul consented to that. And what they thought was, hey, when we do this, it's going to disband them. You just wait. And don't you look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is immediately following Stephen's stoning and killing. And this is what happens. It says in Acts 8, 1, Luke records, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of where? Judea and Samaria. Pay very close attention to that. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. But the believers who were scattered, watch this, this is is powerful, who were scattered, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and to see the miraculous signs that he did. 
Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. So what I want you to look at here is verses 1 and verses 8. This is very important. It says, a great wave of persecution began that day. Everybody goes, oh, that's tough. Then look at verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. And what happens here with what could have been the worst thing ever, a pure, awesome person named Stephen who loved the Lord is martyred. That is not good. He was killed. But what happened with that in in Acts 8, 4, we see Matthew 28, 18 through 20 happen. Remember Jesus told his disciples, go and as you're going, make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 4, what happens because of the, the killing of Stephen. It says, but the believers who were scattered, what do they do when they're scattered? Is it, they went into hiding and got very scared. Is that what it says? Verse 4 says, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus. Where? Wherever they went. Go and as you're going, make disciples. And I think what we miss here is that we think that, that we think verse 8 is what our life should be. We want to live in verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. Miraculous signs were done. But I don't think we realize in order to get to verse 8, you've got to have verses 1 through 7. You have to. You have to. And if we don't understand how to look at verses 1 through 7 and digest them into our own life, then we'll never see verse 8 happen. We'll never, we'll never see ourselves engaging the mission of God because we misunderstand God's way of doing things. And so when you look at verses 1 and verses 8 and try to bring them together, here's what you have to understand. When Satan is burying, God is planting. When Satan is burying something, God is just planting something. And you have to look at this uh, in, in, in like a glass half full, glass half empty mindset because if you just view Satan burying everything in your life, He's taken this. He's destroyed this. He's done this. You look at the negative part of it, you'll never see the verse 8 in your life come to pass. So there was great joy in that city. The great wave of persecution that the enemy meant in that moment, he meant to destroy the church, to take the church out, to stop the movement. But what happened with him doing that, the great wave of persecution scattered them to the places Jesus had called them to go. And especially to Samaria, the place they would never go, because Jews and Samaritans, that was a huge racial divide. Jews, for the most part, were purely Jewish, and their line was kept Jewish. Matter of fact, today, even those who are culturally Jewish still pride themselves on marrying other people who are Jewish. But the Samaritans were half-Jews, and they had their own version of the first five books of the Bible, Right? Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had the first, their own version of it called the Pentateuch. It was their Samaritan version of the Pentateuch. So the Jews were upset that they had their mountain they believed they worshipped on. The Jews had their, and that was a huge racial divide. These disciples would have never went there without the persecution. And what I love is that Philip probably remembered John chapter 4. Remember John 4, the woman at the well? They went through Samaria. He had to send the disciples away, and then they came back, and they saw, saw this harvest of people coming, and they saw Jesus talking with this woman at the well. Like, a rabbi would never do that. And that's where Philip went to and saw that happen. 
And what I want to do today is help you understand in your life that when you're not here in a worship service, when you're, when you're going through your toughest situations, it looks like that Satan is burying you, that he's putting you six feet under. Understand in that same moment when you surrender yourself to Jesus, God's planting you. And God wants to do something powerful in your life. And it takes sometimes being buried for you to plant to see what happens. And see, my son was so distraught because he couldn't understand why we couldn't just put the soul on, on top. It has to go in. And why is that? The potential of the seed is inside the shell. That shell is not, is not the seed itself. And it actually is, it protects it. But if the seed is never buried, that seed will never see its potential. Think about that. What happens underneath the soil? Think about it. When a seed goes into the soil, that soil begins to break down the outer shell of that seed. It breaks it. It destroys it. Why? Because what's inside has to come out. And if we, to, if we don't understand that God's process in our life is a breaking that has to happen, there's a, there's a planting that has to happen, and it happens in darkness, it looks like nothing's happening in your life, you're wondering what's going on, and it's in those times God is breaking things in you so your potential will come out. See, see, when, when Jesus fed the 5,000, we had a series we did on that several weeks ago. When he got the bread, there was, a, there was a progression in which he took the bread through. The first thing he did was he received it. The second thing that Jesus did was he blessed it. The third thing is he broke it. And then he distributed it. What we want is we want to be received, blessed, and distributed. Can we just skip step three, God? I mean... Or can we minimize step three? <laughs> can we just kind of get past that a little bit? And what you see in the early church was the same thing. They received Christ. He blessed them greatly. Jerusalem saw believers getting saved daily. Jewish priests converted. Blessing. But in order for him to get them to the places they needed to go to distribute them, he had to break them. And he used Satan's own tactics against him for that. And friends, the same way for us is if you want God to distribute you, can I tell you something? He's got to break you first. And the breaking process of the Lord is actually beautiful. It's painful. It hurts. But you will never see the potential inside of you unless you understand when you go through those situations, the Lord is trying to break. And you've got to ask that question. When you're going through a tough situation, don't say, why me? And I'm no good. And God must not like me. You, you pause. You say, Lord. There's something you must want to do great inside of me, that you, the potter, I'm the clay, and that you would break me. There must be something beautiful inside of me. And I want you guys to understand that at any time in your life, when it looks like that Satan is burying you, you say, I'm not being buried, I'm just being planted. Because see, here's the thing, if we don't understand God's way of advancement, then when that happens, we're going to end up retreating instead of leading. If we don't understand God's way of advancing, we're going to end up retreating instead of leading. Meaning this, when those things happen to you, and two people can go through the same thing with two different responses. Why is that? One person understands, oh, this is God's way of advancing. This is God's way of moving things forward. The other person says, oh, no, no, this is terrible. This should, this should not happen. And if we change the way that we think about that, we will not retreat. So many believers... And I've been there, trust me. When you go through a tough time, you retreat, you get by to yourself, you don't see them at church. I mean, you've got to put them on the back of a milk carton to find them, right? 
well, I've just been going through stuff, and they isolate, I've been going through tough stuff, and they isolate themselves. Whereas the other person says, no, 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 this is the Lord's way of shaping me and molding me and developing me, and there's things inside of me he's still trying to break, and they press into it. They don't quit. They don't give up. They understand this is the time for me to press into what God has for me because there's something he wants to do in my life. You know, for me, I was telling my son the other day, we were talking about football, and he wanted to quit about halfway through the season. Because he's eight years old. He doesn't understand it. I mean, he loves football. We play every day together. But he's not understanding a lot of things I'm trying to explain to him. And I told him a story about my dad. I said, son, I said, my dad told me in middle school, in seventh grade, because he said, if you quit football now, you'll always quit. So I came to dad and I said, dad, I, I don't like this. I mean, guys, let me tell you something. I was not in shape. Like, I grew up in a rural south. I was, I was not, I, I mean, not in shape at all. And these guys were wearing me out. If some of you played football, the Oklahoma drill is you both lay down, and you're probably from here to that guy with your head to that guy. One guy has the ball, one guy doesn't. They put barriers on the side of you. You get up, he gets up and the whistle blows, and you hit each other. The first time I did that, my friend Terrence, his nickname was Philly, the first time that happened, Philly, not, I mean, he knocked the wind out of me. I got up, I was crying, going, Bordo, are you good? Crying, I was in the back of that line crying. I was thinking, what just, what is football? I mean, I played outside with my friends, but man, that guy just wear, I mean, and that happened like all that first year. There were some, there were some just, there were some good athletes there. I was not an athlete back then. And I got wore out, my, but my dad told me, because of the pain, I wanted to quit. My dad said, if you quit now, you'll always be a quitter. Because anytime you quit, it always gets easier. Anytime you give up, it always gets easier to give up. And I didn't like that. But I knew something deep inside of me as a, as a young kid in the seventh grade said, he's right. And I didn't quit. And I ended up playing varsity. I ended up loving football, my favorite things that I ever did. But the same thing happens to us when we get hit, our initial response is, I ain't getting, oh, I, don't, I don't want that. I'll just quit. I'll just back off. This ain't for me. And I want you to understand that if you go through those seasons and you're able to leverage them correctly, the Lord can use you in the most powerful ways ever. But here's what you have to do when you go through it. Be confident when your circumstances are obstinate. Be confident. This is totally antithetical to our thinking. Confidence when, when your circumstances are obstinate? When everything's going wrong, I should be confident? That's when you're most confident. Because when everything's going against you, when everything's going wrong, that's when you can say, the power's not in me, it's in the Lord. And I cannot rely upon my own strength. I must rely upon the faithfulness of God. And we must have that mindset. You know, the apostle Paul went through that. We look at these guys in the Bible and think they never went through something. He got jailed and imprisoned, imprisoned for, for the things that he didn't do. Like wrongly accused. He's just preaching the gospel. They throw him in prison. And one of the most beautiful books of the Bible he writes is the book of Philippians, the book of joy. And he wrote it from a dirty, dingy prison cell. And he wrote about joy. And what I love about Philippians is Paul doesn't say, oh, woe is me. Pray for me. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't get out and share the gospel anymore. He didn't post on Facebook and look for pity. He spent that whole letter encouraging the Philippians the whole time. Most encouraging letter you'll read in the whole New Testament. 
because he understood that he could be confident when circumstances were opposite. And look at what he says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses of Scripture. He says, I am certain, certain, confident, that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He's saying, Philippians, I know you're facing persecution. I know it's tough in Philippi right now. I know things are bad for you. He says, I'm confident, I'm certain that God will finish the work that he started in you. And that's the mindset we got to have. Anytime you face something in your life that is opposite, there's a wall there. As we sang earlier, nobody else can have that confidence for you. Until you embrace that certainty, until you embrace that confidence against all circumstances were all against you, you'll never see that happen. But here's what you and I have to do. First of all, gain a perspective change. Uh, I, I believe in Western Christianity, we have done ourselves a disservice. I'm not picking on TV evangelists. I'm not picking on people. This is not to like poke fun. This is not to just tease something out. This is to be very honest with you. We talk about living our best life and guys that have, you know, making millions of dollars that are preachers saying, live your best life. God wants to give you all good things. The Bible's meant to give you all good things all the time. And we've done ourselves a disservice. We're like trust fund kids in our minds that our father should always just, just do good things for us, quote, unquote. And, and I'll get to what that means. But until we change our perspective that verse 1 and verse 8 can coincide, that a great wave of persecution began that day, so there was great joy in that city, until you can reconcile those two together, you'll never be able to see God's full work in your life and appreciate the work of the Lord in your life. And so here's what you have to do. Here's a perspective change. The first thing is this. You've got to redefine what good is. That's the first thing we have to do. If we're going to, like, deconstruct this sick way of thinking in America when it comes to God and religion and church and Jesus, change what you think good is. See, we think good is promotion. Well, that is good. Got a new car, which if you're paying a high payments on high interest, that's not good. Just so you know. We think good is we got a blessing from somewhere. Something positive happened to us. Now, are those good things? You say, yeah, that's okay. You're like, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to say anymore. <laughs> those are good. But here's the other side of that. What if, what if that loss that you face was actually good? What if that thing you went through that felt so destructive is actually good? What if the pain that you're going through is actually good? See, we think good is, we have black and white thinking, good, bad, good, bad. You know, you know, Job understood this. This guy lost everything, right? Lost everything. Still had a nagging wife, but he lost everything else, right? <laughs> everything. And when you go through loss, loss is difficult, and compounding losses are very, very difficult in your life. In the middle of that, he makes a statement 
that in a Jewish culture they understood, in an American Christian culture we don't understand, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was saying verse 1 and verse 8 are both together, and I'm blessed and God's blessed in all of that. Redefine what you think good is. Because can I, can I tell you, in my life, if I had time to survey and tell you all the things I went through, you would not believe what I went through in ministry and in life, that that was actually good for me. Kevin, how could you say that? How could you say that would be good for you? Because in that moment, the Lord broke things that would never have been broken if I just had sunshine and rainbows. It took some planting. It took some dark times. It took being with the Lord and being alone with him. And that's how God shapes us. To redefine good. The second thing is this, limit linear thinking. Limit linear thinking. And that's when it comes to God's will. And we're going to do a series in November talking about God's will and how to understand God's will and discern God's will. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of caveat here. It's not that simple. God's will is not like yes or no. We, and we get so caught up in like, is this God's will? Is it? And we just agonize over it and don't know. I'll never forget that I was having a really tough time. I was like, Lord, what, what, do I want to do ministry forever? And God's like, go work at McDonald's. I'll love you just the same. Bless your will, Lord. And the, the Lord's will for us is to obey him, to love him, to share the gospel, to spend time with him. To do. God's will is an attitude, not, sometimes not a place. Think about that. Paul was in prison. It was in the middle of God's will. It made just as much as not more impact than when he was out sharing the good news. And quit thinking that you're so big that you can mess up God's will for your life. Some of us think, well, I made a bad decision with this. I made a bad decision with that. And so now I'm off track. And we're all just, that's not how the Lord works. And now you just, you know, I married this person and had this kid. And now we know, you know, I don't know why I did that. So maybe, maybe the kid wasn't, it wasn't God's will to have that child. Maybe it wasn't. Stop it. Stop it. You're, you're not big enough to mess up the will of God. Can I tell you that? And the Lord can use everything in your life to work together for his good and for his glory and for his will. Stop putting so much pressure on yourself. Was it God's will that Stephen died? I don't know. Was it the original will of God? Was it the original predestined plan of God? That's not for me to figure out. And we got theologians thinking they can figure all that out. Listen, if you can figure everything about God out, then he's not God anymore. There, are, there is some mystery in the sovereignty that we have to receive. So limit linear thinking. Stop saying, is this God's will or not, God, not God's will? My take is this. He's a much better leader than I am follower. And when I submit myself to the hands of the master, I surrender myself to him, then he's big enough to open doors and shut doors, and he'll go before me and make a table in the presence of my enemies. He goes and does it. I don't have to be the one with all the pressure on me. He's the good shepherd, not me. He leads me into green pastures. Amen? So, so limit linear thinking when it comes to God's will. And finally, do this here. Look for op gospel opportunities when things go wrong. Look for gospel opportunities when things go wrong in your life. That's what the early church did. It could not have gotten worse for the early church with Stephen being martyred. A direct attack of Satan to kill that wonderful young man who was serving in the, in the church. 
could not have been worse. But verse 4 says, and when they were scattered, they preached the good news wherever they went. See, whenever the enemy wants to scatter you and hurt you, preach the good news wherever you go. Look for gospel opportunities when things go wrong in your life, when things go wrong. That's how God wants to advance us. You know, for, for me, recently I, I was, you know, I, I love interacting with non-church people. Matter of fact, I like hanging out with non-Christians more than Christians, right? Like, just, I love y'all, but like, I just love hanging out with, with people who are, who are not believers. I do, just to connect with them and get to spend time with them. Uh, when you're in the kind of the role that I'm in, sometimes you can just be consumed with church and consumed with the Bible, consumed with Christians. And I forget the other day, I was uh, talking with a friend at the gym. And as we were talking, we were just, just going through, and he asked me how things were going. I told him, you know, what I went through last year and dealing with a divorce and all that stuff and just the pain that I went through. You know, all the stuff that happened that, that, that previous year. And so, and then he literally, he's not a believer. He literally, like, perked up. And we had the longest conversation we've ever had in almost five years. He began to pour his heart out to me of what he went through, sharing with me everything that he had faced and we were talking about all this and, and he was sharing with me he said man he said how are you doing so well like you look great you just seem happy and joyful i said i said man it's 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 the lord he's been incredibly faithful i just spend time in the in the word man i pray like i just man he's been so good to me and, and you could tell he's not a believer so he was like please tell me how i must know this jesus that only happens for Mark Thomas, our, our campus pastor at Richmond. That does not happen for me, right? Only Mark would be able to lead him to Jesus right then. But, you know, he was like, oh, that's really good. He was listening. He said, you know, he said, my, my counselor, he said, my counselor really helped me understand something about forgiveness. He said, I ne never understood forgiveness. He said, I still have a hard time forgiving, but I had to learn to forgive. I said, man, that's the most freeing thing. I said, Jeff, there's three things I learned about forgiveness in my life that's transforming. I said, it's, number one, it's forgiving yourself. Some of you have never done that. You need to do it. Number two is forgiving other people. I said, the third aspect, man, I said, I, I, said, I, I don't know if you've done this. This is awesome. They helped me out a lot. I said, it's receiving forgiveness from God through Jesus. It's awesome. And that's all I kept it at. I didn't keep going on and on about Jesus. And, man, we connected on a level that we had never connected on before. And I'm looking forward for more conversations with him. I'm looking forward to see how he's doing. And why was that? Gospel opportunities when things go wrong in your life. Because see, people want to see Christ in us when we hit crisis. And that's the best time to show Christ in you is when you hit crisis. Because they're going to notice if you're either retreating or you're leading through it and how you're following Jesus. So I want to pray for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to be able to lean into you when Acts 8-1 happens in our life, when a great wave of persecution happens, when things happen in our life to us. May we lean into you and into your mission and understand that you're using and leveraging those things for our development and for your kingdom. Help us understand that, God. I pray for those right now today. Some people have come in here today, they're watching online, and they're going through one of the darkest seasons they've been through, Lord. I don't know who you're speaking to today, but God, I pray right now for, the, for those people and for that person right now, Lord, that they would leave here saying, I'm being planted, I'm not being buried. I'm being planted, I'm not being buried. 
May they see your work in their life, Father, today. And God, I thank you for everything in my life. And we thank you for everything in our life that we thought was bad. That, Lord, is actually good in your eyes. Good to mold us, to shape us into the image of Christ. And God, as we leave here and go upon our, 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 our daily routes and what we're doing, our jobs and our friends, may we look for gospel opportunities when things go wrong in our life, Lord, to leverage your goodness to others. Help us with that, Lord. And as we're praying today, church, in this mode of prayer, your next step for some of you in here is giving your life to Jesus. You've got to surrender yourself. He's the potter. You're the clay. And you need to surrender yourself to the hands of the master today for him to use you greatly. And you know that it's time to make that decision. It's time to fully surrender. It's time to lean into him. If that's you today, whether you're in here physically or online, I want you to pray this prayer after me. You say, God, I need Jesus. I need the Savior. I surrender to Jesus today. For I believe he died on the cross. And I believe he rose again on the third day. And I believe he's Lord. So today, I repent. I turn from my old life. I walk away from my old life. And I receive new life in Christ. I receive full forgiveness of sins. Now, Lord, help me follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.